0: Hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> and you'll be Chancellor and Liz Truss will be Prime Minister this time next month. Absolutely 100%. I'm not going anywhere. Quasi-quarting has been sang.
1: I am a fighter and not a quitter. <laughs> I am resigning. Gavin Williamson is apparently
2: the eighth Minister or Whip to have resigned in this year alone.
0: Another Housing
1: Minister. Uh, you must be losing track of who works in your department these days. Last year, the UK had three different Prime Ministers, four different Chancellors, and five different housing ministers. Nicola Sturgeon, Scotland's first minister for close to a decade, recently announced her resignation. And it's not clear who will replace her. British politics now seems to be permanently tumultuous. And with the general election peaking over the horizon, political parties are gearing up to win over the public.
0: We will halve inflation grow the economy, reduce debt, cut waiting times, and stop the boats. These five missions will form the backbone of the Labour manifesto, the pillars of the next Labour government. Our country needs strong leadership in these extremely difficult times where millions of families are struggling. Uh, And I think the only way to get to that position where we can help people properly is for a general election. So
1: what are the big ideas influencing UK politics today? How much appetite does the public have for change? And what will be the key battlegrounds at the next general election? Welcome to the New Economics Podcast. We're back with a new series. This week, we're asking, where are the UK's political battles being fought? I'm Ayesha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So, I'm really chuffed to be joined by two absolute heroes of mine today. First of all, Anoush Kellyanne, returning friend of the pod, Britain editor at The New Statesman. Hi, Anoush. Hi, thanks for having me on again. Thank you so much for being back with us. And I'm also chuffed to have James Meadway, director of the Progressive Economy Forum and co-author of The Cost of Living Crisis and How to Get Out of It. Published next month. Hi, James.
0: Hi, Ed. Nice to be back again as well.
1: Fantastic. Okay, so let's jump in because I imagine we're going to have quite a lot to cover. Um So, when our last episode went out, which was a while ago now, Rishi Sunak had actually only been PM for a fortnight. And on the day of recording, he's been in the job for 120 days. So, starting with you, James. What do you think are the big ideas that have characterised his premiership so far?
0: Well, the biggest idea he's had and the one he's had most success with is not being Liz Truss. Uh, And this is to a large extent, this has defined what he's done whilst especially being in power the, after the sort of mini-budget and the, the sort of financial uh, shenanigans around that and the the intervention of the Bank of England and the removal of Kwasi Kwarteng and then Liz Truss as, as Prime Minister. Uh, his sort of presentation of himself as the grown-ups are back in charge, the sensible people are here, this is a return to normality has basically been the sort of defining theme that he's tried to, to run with there. In terms of what he's done On the economy, this is unfortunately more of the same. I mean, I think quite rightly, the TUC and the the head of the CBI, Tony Danker, have described the way that we've been trapped in Britain in what they've called a doom loop of just going round and round the same sets of mistakes. So in response to the sudden crisis and chaos around the mini budget from back in September, the response of Jeremy Hunt, backed up by Rishi Sunak as prime minister, was to say that, oh, we're going to have to make a return to austerity. There's going to have to be more spending cuts in the future, precisely at the moment where you know, inflation is just mashing up great, great chunks of the public sector on top of 10 years of austerity or close to 10 years of austerity. There's huge strikes taking place on scale, particularly in the public sector, that we haven't seen for you know, 30 years or so in Britain because people have not seen their pay increase in such a long period of time. There's a terrible problem with retention in the NHS and other parts of the public sector because people are being paid so poorly. Uh, and then to sort of fling into all of this, as it's becoming clear to all and sundry, as austerity itself is sort of deeply politically unpopular, especially with some of the people that the Conservatives really want to try and hold onto their votes for the next time around, there's this kind of lurch back into saying, oh, we're going to have to spend Cuts again, so it's been an unimpressive record, even by the sort of dim standards of, of recent conservatives. This is not a government that has a very clear vision. The Rishi Sunak, you know, what was it two weeks ago? Maybe he did a, a reshuffle that changed some of the designations of some of the departments. It's all very technocratic. It's all the sort of stuff you might do if you weren't lurching from crisis to crisis. People have seen, you know, the the food shortages, the tomato rationing, lettuce rationing due to the problems in the supply of food that we're now running into, on top of problems in the supply of energy and the. Space in prices over last year. This is uh, somebody who wanted to run a country that was working properly in a time where he wasn't confronted by crises. And he's kind of going through the motions of some of that. Lots of chat about innovation and things that probably go down very well, maybe in California and Silicon Valley, but not so well uh, when you're dealing with the situation we're faced with in Britain. So he's not he's just not very impressive. And I think that's probably increasingly the impression that people are, are getting of him.
1: Mm. I mean, when I was asking the question, uh, what are the big ideas, I was kind of tempted to say, if any, and it certainly sounds like there's very little big ideas and more kind of, as you say... Attempting to distance himself from Liz Truss and firefighting. An the same question, but I was I was wondering kind of specifically, you know, as James mentioned there, Liz Truss's short, very short stint, comically short stint, as PM, was characterized by chaos and Boris Johnson's was characterized by scandals, arguably. Would you say that Sunak's managed to successfully distance himself from the reputations of his predecessors amongst all the kind of firefighting and, and what James was laying out there? I think that
2: he hasn't managed to distance himself as far as he'd like. Obviously, you know, there was a sort of little bounce for him in terms of polling when he came in, but it looks like his reputation is being dragged down with the Tory brand rather than what they'd hoped for, which was the other way around, where, you know, his relative popularity might have sort of You know, rehabilitated the Tory brand somewhat. That's not really coming through in the polling so far. So I don't think it has actually worked, even though, you know, your average casual observer would say that they would prefer to have him in charge than Liz Truss. I say that because, you know, he's tried to distance himself mainly from the Johnson years by promising professionalism, integrity, and accountability. That's what he said when he became prime minister. But, you know, look what's happened since then. Gavin Williamson resigned from cabinet over bullying allegations. The same could happen with Dominic Raab, you know, who's the second in command. He's being investigated for multiple claims. I think at least 24 civil servants are involved in complaints about him. He denies them all, um, I should say, but you know, that's a running sore. And then Nadim Zahawi, who was the party chair, Minister without portfolio, you know, this was one of this is one of those roles where it's supposed to be the minister who's out on the airwaves, the so-called minister for the Today programme, taking the attack to Labour and sort of trying to burnish the the Tories' reputation. He he was sacked over his tax affairs recently. So all of these things that have happened, they feel a little bit like a hangover from the scandals of the Johnson days, but I don't think that, you know, they they say more about the previous administration than they do about Rishi Sunak, because it was his idea, you know, his cabinet is solely his responsibility. He was the one who appointed them to those positions in the first place. And if he felt he had to appoint them to those positions, knowing some of the baggage, then that, you know, really shows his weakness. You could say the same about appointing Suella Braverman as Home Secretary a few days after she'd actually had to leave that post for breaching the ministerial code. So, I do think that there is scandal within his his own administration and he hasn't quite managed to escape that feeling that general feeling that set in under Boris Johnson of of Tory sleaze. And then you know I would echo a lot of what James was saying while he has taken a different approach to the economy than Liz trusted. I mean what good has it done really? I mean the strikes are ongoing, the IMF forecasted that Britain is the only G7 economy likely to shrink this year. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, we have higher inflation than the Eurozone, the EU as a whole, and, you know, some of our peers like France and Germany, the highest inflation in the G7, actually. So, you know, even if he's supposed to be the numbers man, you know, the person who helmed the economy through COVID, which is probably what most people remember him for and and you know what people like about him generally when you you know sitting on focus groups you still hear this that kind of warm glow from the covid years still exists around him but look at you know look at the economy under him so far and uh, there is a lack of ideas and when you speak to people in and around the conservative party you know a lot of them just do feel that there is a, a lack of intellectual heft there, particularly in terms of planning. I think that's something that's really riling up perhaps sort of younger Tory thinkers. They've ducked all of those battles on planning reforms. And, you know, how on earth can you get growth, which they still
1: maintain is very important for the economy, without making those changes. Mm, I mean, that was kind of going to be some my next point was, you know, a common story about the Tory party, really, which seems to be in step with what you're saying there, is that it's just a party that's run out of steam. You know, it's exhausted, it's divided after a decade of government. You know, if they were to win the next general election, probably by some miracle, they'd be, I think I'm right in saying, the only government ever to win five successive elections. People are kind of saying, maybe they're just a party that's tired, you know, at the end of the road, and they've got no new ideas. And this is, you know, this is what comes of that. Exactly as you were saying, there, we're at the point where things are so bad and they're so tired that they're reappointing people that have just been fired from roles that they've just been fired from. Maybe coming to you on that, James, would you agree? I guess. And then, you know, it's still a long way off, but we'll be seeing a general election next year. Uh, what can we expect from the government in the run-up to the election if that really is the state of affairs?
0: Well, there's certainly something to that. I mean, just the fact that you've been in power for a long period of time, it, it kind of produces a, a sort of complacency about what you're doing and a, a complacency of behaviour, really. That, the, the, you know, once you have a government that isn't necessarily going to move very much, you suddenly find there's lots of people who take slightly looser views than you should have about the role and purpose of public spending. Let, let's call it that in, in terms of some of the scandals over the last sort of 18 months or so. I mean, what people were saying about 18 months ago is, you know, just how good the Tories are at sort of reinventing themselves. that They've gone through a reinvention under Boris Johnson as this sort of pro-Brexit, rather more interventionist party uh, than they used to be under George Osborne, David Cameron, or Margaret Thatcher for that matter. That suddenly this was going to be about levelling up and lots of big spending by government and big projects and investment and an end to austerity and this sort of thing. And that was a package that Boris Johnson, with his sort of political instincts, I suppose you'd call it, which he's sharp on, had seen the need to try and deliver, had successfully cobbled together a, an electoral coalition that would support that, and that's what you saw in 2019, but then really couldn't deliver it in government in the way that was being promised and the way that was being laid out. Lots of noise about doing this stuff, couldn't actually deliver it. And now you have, you know, after going through the sort of truss interregnum, you have this prime minister and this chancellor who are extremely sort of traditional um, not just the Tory party, but I think there's a sort of institutional view that's kind of hardwired into important bits of the British state, the Treasury view, this belief that actually government spending should always be balanced, that governments can't really do anything ever, that you just have to sort of get out of the way, that it's always steady as she goes, that any talk about a vision or planning or doing things for a long term, that's a bit redundant. You know, this sort of passive uh, view that to give trusts and quieting their credit, and you're not going to give them much credit, but to give them some credit, they did identify that there is a problem with thinking like this. It identified that there are serious weaknesses in the British economy relative to other similarly similar economies around the world. I think finally that is is being recognized as you know things are bad everywhere right It is everywhere that is suffering from rising inflation, instability, food shortages, energy price shocks. that's happening everywhere relative to other advanced economies, they're happening worse in Britain. And your primary culprit for this is the fact that we had this government for 13 years has gone through a series of Basically, very poor, like historically poor economic decisions. Of which the most important one was austerity, and then the kind of flapping about after the end of austerity has, has hardly sort of added, uh, has added its own sort of own sort of problems to the mix. So that's that's where we've got to now. It's a kind of drift of the Conservative Party, but it's a drift of the whole economy. It's a drift of Britain. Uh, now finding itself outside the EU, of course, which was always there as something of a prop to, to economic growth for a long period of time. We'd adapted to a world in which we had a, a close economic relationship with our sort of nearest trading partners. That was something that we had. We're now bereft of that in a world that's hit by all these big crises, where you have a government that doesn't know what it's doing, institutions that really have this lean towards failure, because that's what you get with the Treasury view. That's what you get with the Bank of England behaving the way that it does. And so it's not a very happy picture for the Conservative Party, because they're there. But really, I think the problem here runs much deeper than just saying, well, it's the Tory Party, they're a bit burned out. We're going to have to do something more fundamental to get this country moving in any useful sense in a way that most people would benefit. And the question then becomes, will any of the main parties be able to do that. Now, there is... Just on the the last part of your question, and quickly on that, I think there is a version of the world where things are so bad now that some slight improvements, let's say the forecasts from the Bank of England and others work out as planned over the next year, inflation comes down. Obviously, that means prices are still rising, but it may not look quite as bad as it does now. By the time you get to twenty twenty four, the Bank of England is basically saying we'll be around two percent, which is the target that it has for inflation. So that's kind of back to normality as far as inflation goes. Maybe by that point, and perhaps we. Judicious tax cuts. The Tories can say, hey, we got through the worst of this crisis. We're the people to get you through the crisis. We're the people who can plan for the future. Maybe they'll do okay. The polling evidence does tend to suggest that Labour support, although impressive on the headlines, you know, what is it today? A 28 point lead. I mean, It's dramatic is actually really quite soft underneath that. There's lots and lots of people undecided about the Labour Party and about Keir Starmer in particular. So we might find that things, we probably will find that things will start to look better for the Conservative Party in polling terms and that it's not completely implausible that with a bit of Good luck and the economy working somewhat better than perhaps some of the dire forecasts have have said. And with some tax cuts somewhere down the line and some traditional Tory things that they might do in the run up to the election, they could start to close the gap on Labour and potentially be in a position where they're competitive again.
1: Anush, what do you think on that specifically? You know, the question of uh, I think the, the polling and whether or not they're able to close the gap is one very important point. And another thing I'm really interested in, kind of beyond that, is will we see some kind of big ideas or a big agenda from soon next government that's going to jump out and surprise us all ahead of the next election or will it be kind of more of the same but with more electioneering a couple of the culture war strategy things thrown in some more discrediting of labor etc cetera, etc cetera?
2: i think more the latter and i do agree with james that there is there is a slim opportunity for them there where you know once inflation starts to fall and if they do manage to you know Find a bit of money to introduce those tax cuts that their backbenchers backbenchers are um, pressuring them on um, ahead of the next election. You know, they can tell a story then where they say, "Look, you know, we've been through a lot. The economy is just starting to tick up again. We're putting a little bit more money back into your pockets. Don't let Labour mess it up this time." Um, and I I have a feeling that that might be the kind of narrative that they go for because while the public at the moment trusts Labour more. The economy than it does the Conservatives, in a big part because of what happened with the mini budget. I do think that that opinion is quite soft and there is still that quite entrenched view when you go out and about, you know, following door knockers around, or if you listen in on focus groups or or you speak to to people sort of outside of the Westminster bubble, that view, you know, the view that Labour was irresponsible with the economy last time round is still quite entrenched. It's changing. And of course, Starmer and Rachel Reeves are doing their damnedest to try and change that, you know, basically understanding that that's what they're doing. Is behind every single (laughs) utterance that they make. It seems you know at Labour conference it was really interesting. There was sort of usually at Labour conference the applause lines are for you know our NHS heroes and all of the classic sort of Labour greatest hits. But this time around, I think there was an applause line for fiscal discipline. So you can see what they're they're doing and why they're doing it because I do think they anticipate that that might be one of the Conservatives' attack lines in terms of trying to you know, maybe not win the next election as badly as as they fear or or try and win it. It's interesting that James thinks that there is a path for them to potentially potentially win. Um, and I can see that happening. I don't think it's going to be some big new idea or new direction um, because they are spooked, aren't they? They're, they've been spooked by the mini budget, which was a sort of go for growth, move fast and break things type attitude. But they've also been spooked by Theresa May's... Um, Uh, 2017 manifesto and campaign where she did try and introduce a big idea, you know, to her credit, she tried to introduce a, a solution to something that's been a long running problem in politics, which is fixing the social care system. Not that her policy for it necessarily was the right solution, but, you know, she tried to tackle one of these big, almost taboo structural issues um, and really got hit for it. So, you know, that kind of memory is still at the front of the minds of a lot of Tory campaigners now. So I I doubt that they're going to take any risks like that, but I do think that their argument is going to centre on, don't let Labour mess this up, but also with the culture wars stuff thrown in. And you saw Rishi Sunak have a little bit of success with that, actually, with blocking the gender recognition reform bill that was quite popular among the public you know scots generally you know even a lot of people who had voted smp felt quite sympathetic towards that and i think it's interesting because it shows that that was a that was a little bit of a risk that sunak took there but it did kind of work and and the interesting thing is they did it in a non culture war way you know they didn't let kemi badenok have the the reins she's the one you know who probably would be a little bit more fighty on these kind of issues They put it down to Alistair Jack, their Scottish secretary, um, who kind of made the constitutional and legal argument for it, rather than trying to stir up, you know, the toxicity that we know surrounds the the debate about self ID. So, you know, I I think they've, they've got a sort of Sunakian way of doing culture wars. And that was an example of him playing it, I think, to his
1: advantage. So you could see more of that playbook come in ahead of the next election. Yeah, I mean, it's it's chillingly effective, isn't it? That kind of culture walls, but from a kind of bureaucratic technological standpoint of saying, no, 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 this isn't actually about... Yeah, exactly. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, this isn't about people's identity or about rights. This is about process and people in Britain love process. Um, so, you know, it's a great way to win people over. I want to get into the conversation about cost of living explicitly. I know inflation has been mentioned quite a lot and it feels like there's a lot to say. So the defining news story of the last year has, of course, been the skyrocketing cost of living and it's not going away anytime soon. Um, A NEF research has recently found that two in five families won't be able to afford a decent standard of living by the next general election. So coming to you first, James, you wrote a piece uh, last year that argued that a growing economy with rising GDP no longer actually translates into better living standards. And as I said in the outset, you've written a book on this.
0: Can you tell us more? Yeah, well, happy happy to. Um, It's it's been quite dramatic, obviously, over the the last 18 months or so. And by the way, the the rise in the cost of living predates uh, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I mean, that's had a, a really big impact, most obviously, on energy prices. But energy prices were, were rising ahead of this, and food prices were, were steadily creeping up uh, over that period of time. And, and it's going to be food prices that dominate the story over this year. And it's going to, there's this issue with inflation where the headline number, I think there's a more of appreciation of this now that we have quite high inflation, uh, very high inflation relative to recent history, that what people see as you know, 10.1% as it is now. This is the increase in the consumer price index. What you see as that number isn't necessarily what you experience as an individual, having to deal with the fact that prices are going up, that if something you can't avoid spending money on, which is energy prices to a large extent, if it's winter, you're going to have to heat your house. I mean, you can try and cut back. But there's limitations to that. If it's food, you're even more stuck because you are definitely going to have to eat at some point. So you can't avoid that. You feel the inflation much more severely than if it happens to be very severe inflation in something you don't buy so often. yeah, you know, the price of uh, foreign holidays goes through the roof. I mean, okay, it's, it sort of might affect you at some point in the year, but it's not really going to affect you on a day to day basis. So, I think people's experience of the cost of living crisis has been quite visceral because it's to do with essential items rather than things that you can have some more choice over whether you consume or not. And, and that's really crucial because it means it eats very directly into people's living standards. And, and as I said, I don't think that's going to, even if the headline rate of inflation comes down, and we'd expect it to uh, over this year or so because energy prices, the wholesale energy prices have come down, that's going to feed into the headline rate of inflation. But you're then going to run into this problem of uh, continuing increases in food prices for a period of time. So it's going to feel very rough for people. And the problems that we're running into, especially in Britain, but apply somewhat everywhere, is for, for a long period of time, particularly in Britain, we haven't actually had the kind of investment that you'd need in the building blocks, the kind of foundations of the economy, things like your energy system, things like your food system, especially if you're outside the EU, as we now are, that we haven't had the investment going into this. We haven't, for instance, put a great deal of money into getting out of natural gas and other fossil fuels and into things that are now very substantially cheaper, like a significant investment in wind turbines and wind farms and solar panels over the, the last sort of 10 years or so. It has happened. It has happened on a scale that would have been probably underestimated you know, 10 years ago or so. There has been that kind of private sector initiative, but the bit of translating that into energy prices for domestic users and doing things around energy efficiency and doing stuff for the longer term hasn't happened. So that when you end up in a world where lots of big dramatic shocks happen elsewhere in the world... Russia invades Ukraine. There is extreme weather event that affects events that affect harvests across the world. There's um, drought in Europe uh, affects the price of river transport, which drives up the price of foods and other goods that you need to transport via river, also affects inflation here. That When you live in a world that looks like this, you need to make sure the foundations and the building blocks of your economy are actually working well and that's something that hasn't happened, particularly under this government for the last 13 years or so. They've cut uh, investment in all manner of, sort of capital spending that government would otherwise be making. So we're quite exposed to all of this, and we're exposed to all of this with a government that at the minute is somewhat dominated by the idea that really they shouldn't be doing too much, and they're looking to make further cuts in the little they do, rather than a government that might think, well, there's a sort of purpose that we could introduce here. There's a, a way that we can intervene in the economy that will make things work better, that we don't have to sort of passively accept a view that government really can't do anything. And we're suffering as a result of that. Inflation is somewhat higher, somewhat higher in Britain because of Brexit. That's added a a few percentage points onto our rate of inflation, but also somewhat higher because of this longer term failure to invest in things like energy efficiency and renewable energy that would right now be saving us all money.
1: Mm, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I know Anoush, you recently covered YouGov research, which identified what you called the new social groupings of the inflation age, which seems to relate a lot to what James was saying. Could you tell us a bit more about that?
2: Yeah, that was a really interesting bit of polling that YouGov did, where they've sort of divided the country into five new segmentations, depending on how they're experiencing the cost of living crisis. And what really stuck out, I can't remember all of the names of them. They weren't particularly catchy names, no offense, YouGov. But what really stuck out to me about these were that it didn't necessarily follow that income would dictate your response to the cost of living crisis. So the group with the highest income, I think it was unsettled with standards. They had the same level of support for the Labour Party as the um, people who were, you know, the worried sufferers, the people right at the bottom who were having the most acute experience of the cost of living crisis. And those who felt most insulated from it and weren't worried about their financial future at all, the calm and comfortable, I think that group was called, you know, they were overwhelmingly homeowners. They were people who had assets and wealth. And so I think this is the interesting thing is that it shows that and you know this is one of those debates that makes social media sort of erupt but Salary is not necessarily going to be the biggest tell of whether or not you can withstand conditions like this anymore. It's because of wealth is the big divide. Um, And this is something we've done quite a lot of work on at The New Statesman, where we've looked into the way that the cost of living crisis is affecting people who, you know, until recently saw themselves as middle class. And again, you know, this makes a lot of our readers quite annoyed, but we, we do a lot of coverage of people who are on very low incomes as well. But I think it's important, the fact that it is affecting people who saw themselves as you know comfortably off affluent you know able to go on holidays able to you know provide whatever they wanted for their children now they can't they feel they can't do that and we've spoken to a lot of people who have expressed that sentiment i think that's important because those are the people who will you know have more political influence in terms of having a voice in terms of voicing their concerns to their mp in terms of living in swing seats or you know tory facing seats or tory marginals These are the people who perhaps voted Tory last time round as well. So I do think that that's an important trend to watch. And it is something that Labour has picked up on. Um, I think Keir Starmer in his new year speech was talking about people who until recently they could pay their bills without worrying, but now they can't, you know, it's something that they've, that's on their radar. The squeezed middle was an Ed Miliband phrase that was much debated at the time because people in the commentariat didn't know what, who on earth could be squeezed. Um, but now it, you know, it does feel like that slogan is quite relevant. They're not using the slogan. Um, I think it would sort of be a bit like recycling old messaging but it certainly is something that comes back when you speak to people people say that they feel squeezed so that's something that really stuck out to me in that in in that youGov research but also in in the kind of general reporting that we've done on how the cost of
1: living crisis is playing out among the population okay so I want to get a bit more specific uh, in terms of the cost of living kind of dive into some rabbit holes around it so against the backdrop of the inflation that we've been talking about I think it's ten percent now maybe a bit more as you both I think mentioned at some point we're seeing the biggest strike action in decades. Uh, Half a million people went on strike at the end of January, making it the biggest day of strike action for 12 years. Before we talk about the government's response, I want to talk about the public mood around it and how that relates to all the stuff we've been talking about about around cost of living. So James, from your vantage point, what's the public attitude towards strike and pay and how does that link to what's going on at the moment around the cost of living? Yeah, what's been
0: quite dramatic has been the extent of public support for the the strikers it varies depending on who it is on strike you know nurses tend to be more popular than RMT members as a rule in terms of the wider public perception but it's not just that People are sort of broadly supportive of the strikers and what their strikers say they're striking for. It's also that, on at least some polling, supporters actually increased as the strikes have, have wound on. That, you know, when people have got a, a space to say why they're discontented enough to go on strike, and you do have to be pretty discontented to do this, this has actually reinforced the idea in the public that this is actually not a bad thing to be doing. And that, you know, the, if you ask them also again on the polling, you know, who they blame for the strikes, they'll tend to point the finger more or less in the direction of the government rather than the union barons or whatever particular story the government would prefer. And that's incredibly bad for the government in terms of it having a strategy at all to deal with this. It depended to a very substantial degree on public support draining away for the strikes and then by some sort of process not entirely clear how this would then turn into the strikes ending and uh, the government winning. Based, it seems, on, on something of a sort of fantasy version of what Margaret Thatcher did back in the 80s. You know, Margaret Thatcher in the sort of Tory imagination, lots of people's imagination, took on the unions, defeated them. Um, mighty epic battles, all that sort of stuff. And that's really what Thatcher did. I mean, one of the first things Thatcher did on arriving in office in 1979 was to give a 25% pay increase to the public sector. Um, She didn't want... A second winter of discontent. These were the big strikes, mostly in the public sector over 1978 into 79. She won the election shortly afterwards on the basis of not having those strikes happening. So she paid people. Inflation was, what, 12% or or more at the time, but that's a very substantial pay increase, quite deliberately to avoid the strikes. And then you go off and immediately, if you're Margaret Thatcher, go and have a huge industrial dispute with steelworkers in the nationalised industry at the time, which you do actually win. This government's done something different. Rather than kind of paying people off or trying to work out, you know, which disputes you want to have at which points in time. It's been taking everyone on all at once and then waiting for the public to get fed up and then the strikes kind of magically end. But you know, how's that? Get, it's not really clear how that would happen. It's not really clear if you write a law saying you must carry on working and you've got people who are driving a train and you don't have any train drivers, you can write whatever law you want. They still have the power to decide whether the train is driven or not. It's not something you can alter. So they've misjudged a whole load of things on this, a whole series of what they should be doing to deal with uh, strikes on this scale and to deal with sort of this incipient public anger, I think, on the, on the scale that we're seeing and that support for the strikes that we're seeing. They've kind of misjudged every part of that, probably through a combination of, of just lack of experience. You know, Thatcher arrived in office hard bitten, like the people around her, after decades of uh, industrial struggle. I mean, people talk about the winter of discontent and try and make comparisons um, between now and then. The winter of discontent sees many millions of strike days lost. Today, you're barely scraping into perhaps we'll get to a million or so for this year. And that itself will be the largest number of strike days lost in any single year since 1989, like 30 years ago. Um, it's just not something that happens in Britain anymore. So the Tories and the government and probably the people around the government and advising them just don't have that experience now to deal with this, which is has the potential, I think, from their point of view, and the risk from their point of view, that they're probably, they probably are going to have to make some sort of concession. They are going to have to give some group of strikers some fairly generous settlement. Their great fear And this is something that we haven't seen happen so much with these rounds of strikes. Their great fear, as the Treasury let it to be known uh, to the Financial Times last week, was that if they offer anything over 5%, it will act as a signal to people in the private sector, not the public sector, the private sector, that they ought to be demanding more money as well. And thus, we'll end up with a raft of huge pay demands and inflation going through the roof and all the other terrible things that's supposed to happen if you pay people more when prices are going up. That's the government's fear in this. There's a sort of learning process and that's they want to avoid. I think it's actually quite a serious risk that this will happen and that the number of disputes you're seeing in the private sector, which has also been picking up, although in many cases it's been pay claims that people put in, lorry drivers have been really outstanding on this, pay claims that people put in for double digit pay increases that companies will just concede immediately to avoid a strike. You might start to see more of that happening in this big shift from the where we see strikes taking place from the public sector into the private sector, precisely through that kind of power of a good example, which the government is so desperate to avoid. And I should say, of course, there's there's no real question that they can pay and can afford to pay, uh, the people who are now going on strike. They can afford to meet the nurses' pay demand. They can afford to give everyone an inflation-busting pay increase in the public sector. The money is, in fact, there. It's there because, frankly, government borrowing costs have fallen uh, since Liz Truss uh, was removed as prime minister. They've got, against their own fiscal rules, a lot more room to spend than they used to have. So, they could actually meet all these demands, but they won't do it because the politics, as far as they're concerned, is that if you do this, it sets an example. You end up with more strikes happening everywhere. And we can't allow that to happen.
1: It's so interesting. I mean, I think first of all, obviously, it seems very in keeping with the current government's approach to governance, which is kind of nobody move nobody do anything let's just pretend it's not happening um and hopefully nobody will shout at us which is fascinating and then you know the the point that you made about them being scared that people in the private sector would then you know go on to demand their own pay rises I just can't really I mean of course not everybody in the private sector many people in the private sector are, are on low wages or or you know in the gig economy but on the whole people in the private sector it's it seems to me are better compensated for the work that they do because of the deliberate kind of suppression of public sector wages over the past few decades. I just can't really imagine anyone, you know, so-and-so working for Twitter or Google being like, wait a minute, my nurse is getting two grand more a year. I demand more too. It's just absurd. Anoush, I want to ask you about strikes, particularly about the Labour Party and how they're currently responding. I feel like there's been some controversy. <laughs> yeah, Labour,
2: Labour's response to the strikes is is quite confusing, I think, for the sort of, if you were just an onlooker, you probably would be quite confused because... What they say is they sort of say that nurses' pay is poor, or you know it should be higher, but they don't give a they don't give a figure. So that's sort of the gotcha question of the moment is well, how much would you pay them if you know if you don't think that the current pay settlement is generous enough? Um, And then you also have sort of noises off from some shadow cabinet figures like Wes Streeting picking a fight with the BMA and you know over their demands. But this was before doctors had even voted to go on strike yet, so there's sort of this lust i think uh, on his part and his team's part to kind of seem like he would be a reforming health minister and you know do unpopular things you know for the sake of saving the n h s is probably how he would put it, and that is he's wrapped up in his sort of response to the doctor's union, which you know is a little bit confusing, i think, in terms of the strategy i don't I don't think it's necessarily that bad a strategy because the public, as James said, is pointing its finger at the government as the people to blame for strikes. So Labour can sort of get away with sitting back and sort of watching government ministers trying to cope with all of this chaos unfolding. But, you know, it's an uneasy balance that the parties tried to strike. Um, you know, you had all of those problems with Starmer telling shadow cabinet members not to go out on the picket and, you There was a lot of unease about that among some of the figures in the shadow cabinet who just, you know, who felt that that was anathema to Labour's tradition and that, you know, it was a sign that Starmer, and this is something, you know, someone very high up in the shadow cabinet told me you know it shows that he doesn't understand the sort of history of labor and he's not really a true labor politician in the sense that he's you know quite a newcomer then again he's made he's made a bit of a virtue of that you know I'm the newcomer coming into Westminster and seeing that it doesn't work properly and you know let's let's restructure it and uh, you know, apparently that is quite sincere. I've heard uh, so someone in his circle described him as a sort of boy scout when it comes to cleaning up standards in politics, and you know, some of that earnestness and you know, general sort of quite dull work um, seems to be spreading into his view of how the country should be structured and sort of how best to devolve power from Whitehall. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's you know, it says a lot about Starmer as a leader. It's not you know the happiest balance. But I think they're getting away with it at the moment, and you know the unions. When you speak to them, there is frustration, but they do seem pretty resigned to the fact that this is the kind of politics that Labour has to do at this point. They're quite pragmatic. A lot of the the people inside the unions that I speak to, um, and in a way, it's, it was ever thus. You know, <laughs> unions and and the Labour leadership haven't always got along, but I think there is an understanding within the union movement that this is sort of the electorally expedient thing to do. Um, having said that, you know, the fight between the sh- shadow health team and and the BMA seems I think, seems to have been an unnecessary sort of distraction. And some of the stuff coming out about what they would do to the health service, you know, sounds a little bit contradictory and not fully thought through.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, it seems quite in line with the current Labour leadership's approach to opposition so far, which is kind of, no new ideas, really, um, and not rocking the boat too much. It seems like the next election might just be a competition around who can be seen as the most sensible um, and the least likely to change things. Um, and perhaps that's understandable after the backdrop of, what, five years plus of utter chaos. But nonetheless, it's somewhat disappointing. Sticking with the Labour Party for a moment then, you know, as, as we've said, they're gearing up for an election. Coming to you first, James, and then back to you, Anoush, on this I'm just interested, what kind of voters do you think that Labour will be trying to win over and what policies, if any, will they be using to do that?
0: Well, look, what's most striking thing about starmer's labor is, is is the contrast between the sort of performative attacks on corbynism which is sort of you know it's been built into how he's operated as leader pretty much throughout his time in office i suppose it's picked up uh, recently and the actuality of policy and what he says he's going to do which is uh, great chunks of the corbyn 2017 manifesto and program taken and polished down a bit and represented uh, as something new and different and everyone says how sensible this is and and how wise, uh, you know, Rachel Rees is at managing the economy. When, for instance, to pick up on her, you know, fiscal discipline, it's uh, an all but identical set of fiscal rules to that presented by John McDonnell when he was Shadow Chancellor. If anything, slightly looser. So they, they've kind of got that part of it. I think basically correct. You do a sort of slightly rhetorically toned down, to say the least, uh, managerial version of Corbynism, recognizing that some intervention is popular and that a bunch of things government could do and say in the economy will be popular with a whole uh, bunch of people out there without necessarily... I don't think moving to the point where this is addressing some of the, the fairly significant crises that, that, that we face at the minute. It would be good, for example, to see a lot more from the Labour Party, not only on the industrial strategy that they have, which is actually a, a solid document. It's a good document that they produced, and that Johnny Reynolds and his team produced last conference detailing the list of you know, sort of interventions they want to make across five kind of key sectors. I mean, it's all fairly you know, smart and increasingly a sort of consensus approach to how you do economic policy now. Um, The difficulty is that it doesn't quite get into some of the areas that really need work, like, for instance, uh, the food supply system and security of food supply, and matching that up with things like working on the problem of biodiversity loss in Britain and matching that up to a broader conception of the ecological crisis that we're in. But in terms of who they want to address this to, I think there's been a fairly clear attempt that's led the messaging that they've been pushing for a long period of time now, that they've identified a a set number of, or a relatively small number of potential swing voters and a relatively small number of fairly marginal seats that Tories picked up uh, last year. And they've directed their messaging very, very squarely uh, in that direction on the assumption that everybody else will be left with either just enough to encourage them to vote for Starmer's Labour, or that if you're on the left, you just sort of won't have very much choice but to vote for Starmer's Labour when push comes to shove. Broadly, I think the calculation's probably actually not far off wrong. If you look at polling, the leads are so big, and yes, they might be soft, they're so big that clearly lots of people just really would want to get rid of the Conservative Party. And they will put up with this not being, if you're on the left, they will put up with this not being quite the kind of full Corbynite 2017 off. There's just enough in there on industrial strategy, on you know, Lisa and Andy talking about doing levelling up better without quite using those words, on the hints at taxation of wealth, on the insistence that austerity will not be something that Labour returns to. There's enough there to sort of keep together a coalition of broadly left and centre-left voters, and, and that's enough potentially to, to get you to over the line in, in 2024, let's say. There's far more that could be done. There's far more that ought to be done, not just electorally, that you might want to do there to Harden up that support uh, for Labour, but also just in terms of the depth and extent of the crisis that's here, and that I think will be the overwhelming factor at the next election. I I don't think this is going to be a sort of contest between two parties promising very little. I think it's going to be a contest in a state of fairly dramatic economic crisis. I don't think the official forecasts are going to turn out particularly accurate on this point. I think there's going to be a world that we live in that is not going to revert to some calm, stable sort of late 1990s point where if labor at the time, you inherit a growing economy and things don't seem too bad, things are going to look chaotic. That if we want a, a past election to think about as a model for this one, something like what happened in 1974, with deep economic crisis, industrial unrest, many, many parts of this stable system of the post-war world breaking down, and then the election result that's actually quite inconclusive in terms of which of the two main parties gets to run the country in the midst of all this, eventually labor with a very slender it's a minority government after a while, uh, and, and the chaos that ensues Uh, under that government and the problems that follow with Labour being out of office for many, many years afterwards. That's the kind of parallel that I think we need to be thinking about right now, because we are not living in a world where things proceed as planned and everything's calm and stable. Much as the people running our two main political parties might like that to be the world, it's not the world that they've got.
2: Yeah. And can I just add to that, James? I do think that an additional ingredient to what you just described, Uh, you know, I'm imagining that election day is, is the fact that voter ID will be in for the first, time in a general election. And I've just been doing some reporting on, on this and already, you know, for the May elections, when they're introducing voter ID in England, returning officers are, you know, getting local police forces to be on standby because they're so worried that people will turn up and be surprised and confused and frustrated and may take it out on some of the um, polling station staff. You know, hopefully that won't happen. It didn't happen in the pilots, but it's a horrible little hint at the kind of atmosphere that people may be voting in come election day and also how people may feel about the
1: result afterwards if they felt that they weren't able to cast their vote fairly. Mm. And I mean, it's really important that you bring up the voter ID stuff, Anush, because as we know, also, it's going to have a huge impact on who votes and who doesn't, you know, who who turns up and has ID and and everything's good and who are the people who either don't have it for whatever reason or think it's too much of a faff to go along or, you know, they go and get turned away and then they don't go back. You know, we know that when these kind of things are brought in, stricter rules around voter ID, it leads to massive disenfranchisement. And I think that that's something that we need to be aware of, or it can do. We have not that long left and two more big questions. So I want to move us on firstly to Scotland and then Uh, to a little bit of future prediction because you know that we like to make you all Mystic Megs. So let's talk about Scotland. The other major player, of course, in this psychodrama, the SNP. Um, And as I mentioned at the top, Nicola Sturgeon recently announced her shock resignation after leading the SNP for almost a decade and amidst a lot of controversy around the Gender Recognition Act. So coming to you first, James, do you think the SNP will struggle to maintain its dominance in Scottish politics after her departure?
0: I mean, I think it's already... Uh, already has suffering uh, somewhat from this. You, you can see in the immediate sort of polling reaction. There's a few things to, to say around that. The, one is that the state that, that Nicola Sturgeon has actually left the SNP in and, and the fact that it's, it's sort of proving difficult to find someone that, or even to have a set of people who might stand for this election will clarify the different directions the SNP uh, could go in, that it's, it's not a party, despite the fact that it is you know, so large and so dominant and has been in power for such a long period of time in office. It's also suffering from that problem of being a long period of time in office. And some of the sort of... The trick that the SNP government has has managed to be able to perform for a long period of time, which is basically go, you know, if there's anything good happening, it's us doing it. If it's anything bad, it's it's bad old Westminster doing it. They, they've managed that for a long period of time. I think the space for them to do that is really closing off, accelerated by the prospect, of course, because if you then have your in the distance some Argument for independence, which is, you know, there's a permanent Tory majority in England. We'll always get Tory governments we don't don't vote for. That's that. Well, if Labour's on 50% of the polls, that argument also starts to look a bit shakier. The point of the SNP, in a really fundamental sense, might start to look a bit more uh, open there. I mean, what was... So striking, I suppose, about Nicola Sturgeon and how she's responded to this worsening political situation with the SNP in Scotland was that she was someone who who was was a gradualist on independence to the point of to the point of disappearance, to the point of like you know, yes, this is something you might want to happen in the future. That future date, that glorious date when Scotland becomes independent, will always be a long way in the future. It's not something to worry about now. And her attempts to sort of respond to the political problems the SNP had by accelerating the date of this through a series of Different proposals around. Oh, we'll have a kind of implicit referendum at the next general election that she was trying to get past the party. There was that sort of attempt to accelerate the pace. Was really quite. Not so much out of character, but out of line with her her political approach to all of these questions for a long period of time. That this was, you know, this was a sort of technocratic administration that talked up its competence. Again, there are problems with doing that if it starts to look like there's lots of things not going well, and your excuse for things not going well starts to look a bit sort of shopworn. But nonetheless, that's how she presented herself. That's the way the administration in Scotland attempted to present itself. And this sudden acceleration. To deal with the political crisis to sort of say actually we really do want independence I, I don't think did uh, any favours. And, and you can read some of the reaction from an interesting blogger picked up on by Jonathan Shafi who is one of the leading lights of the radical independence campaign as was back in 2014. So he's a pro independence but not, he's SMP critical he's a critic of the SMP. And talking about you know, the, the state of the independence movement in general, that the SMP would be leadership of this movement which in fact hasn't been the leadership of this movement because it's not something the SMP leadership had particularly wanted to talk about, except in the sort of most abstract possible sense, one day independence perhaps, until very recently, the leadership of that movement or its non-leadership has left the sort of demands for Scottish independence in, in a bad state and the movement in general a bit directionless and a bit wandering around. So you put all this together, it's it's the worst point the SNP has, itself has been in for a long period of time. And the fact that you now look like this is going to be quite a messy potential leadership contest that's going to take place is indicative of that. And of course, all the other parties in Scotland will see this, especially... Especially Labour will see it as an automatic opening. I would be a bit wary or a bit hesitant uh, about saying that the SNP still has its huge campaigning resources, its membership base, uh, the fact that it has you know, councillors up and down the country, the fact that it can point to some local successes in various parts of Scotland. I'd be wary about sort of writing them off and saying, "Well, that's it. Labour's marching home to, to victory in Scotland." And, Therefore, to victory in the rest of the United Kingdom. But it does open up the possibility that that might now happen in a way that, you know, even 12 months ago perhaps didn't look so likely.
1: Mm. Anoush, Scotland, what say you? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's, I think Labour are.
2: You know, I think it's right that they're sort of the winners of this decision by Sturgeon to stand down and the way that the the leadership campaign is currently playing out. But yes, you're right, you know, the SNP is a formidable electoral machine, even if, you know, they didn't manage to get that second indie indie referendum. And, you know, nearly half the country wants independence. I mean, that's pretty solid in the polling. It takes dips and twists and turns, you know, according to the political weather. But that's there. I was speaking to a very senior Pollster recently, um, you know, who's involved in exit polls. And he was saying there will be, you know, there will be another independence referendum just because of that weight of feeling in the country. It's not really shifting. And a lot of it is to do with Brexit, you know, not just Nicola Sturgeon's leadership and popularity. So, you know, I think Labour still does have a job on its hands, even if they win a lot of seats there in the general or even win in a, a Hollywood election, they're still going to have a job on their hands in terms of that force of opinion that's still there and is, is not abating. And I think, you know, in terms of the SNP, it's interesting to see how this leadership election, because we haven't had a leadership election. Don't forget that Sturgeon, you know, took over from Alex Salmond after that independence referendum without a leadership election so we haven't had one of these to compare it to for a very very long time and it's interesting cuz it's exposing the divisions the ideological divisions within the party you have someone like Hamza Youssef who's you know probably more of the continuity candidate has you know the similar sort of views on social justice and and sort of progressive lefty-ish politics as, as Sturgeon does, up against, you know, someone who made her a, a name for herself as a politician by, you know, resigning over the gender reforms, Ash Reagan. And then Kate Forbes as well, whose views that, you know, we've seen coming out in various excruciating interviews, you know, that are informed by her faith about, you know, uh, gay marriage and, you know, having children without being married and all of these sort of quite socially conservative views. And it's said that she's quite economically conservative as well in her outlook. You see all of these divisions playing out and it really does You know, it really is interesting because as a journalist, you're used to seeing the SNP as quite a formidably sort of disciplined force, especially the MPs in parliament. Remember when they all came in 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 2015 and they all voted the same way on everything. And it was really hard to get them to sort of brief against each other or do interviews where they might criticise the leadership. And obviously a lot of that has kind of waned a bit um, as Nicola Sturgeon's authority has been dented in recent months. But it's interesting to see the party not being as disciplined as it was. And it does remind you that it really is it's sort of a pressure group isn't it it's a it's a one issue movement reminds you of the times of ukip where there were huge debates within ukip over whether or not they should be pro privatizing the nhs or not because they all had these completely disparate views but their one thing that sort of bound them together was wanting to leave the eu and that led to you know them sort of having one voice on that. And I do think that the SNP leadership contest is probably going to be a sort of independence off, if you like, because Forbes will want to stop talking about her her views on, you know, these social issues that keep coming up. And so perhaps the way to pitch to the membership, which is very pro-independence, you know, that's why people have joined the party, is for her to, you know, really talk up her zest her zeal for a a second independence referendum and sort of her path to getting there. So they'll be sort of flexing their independence muscles in a way that, you know, as James described Sturgeon, you know, she was in a way that she didn't really. I mean, she talked about it a lot rhetorically, but she she was more of a gradualist and that was frustrating for many in the party as well.
1: Thanks both. I mean that certainly uh, makes a lot of sense to me that the uh, independence conversation would be the dominant one. I'm really interested to hear more and think more about what it will mean for the general election. You know, obviously we've we've spoken about it a lot and I want to kind of wrap up by asking both of you as I said to do a little bit of future forecasting. And what I'm really interested in is what do you think the issues are that will dominate the election debate? I know we've talked about what Labour strategy might be and what the Conservatives might do. But what do you think the, the, I guess, if you had to pick, you know, two or three issues that you think will dominate the debate, what would they be? Let's start with you, James.
0: Oh, God. Uh, I'm going to go with so – these things are always uh, hostages to fortune – but um, I'm going to go with uh, the cost of living crisis in some form uh, still as something we'll, we'll be having to talk about. Different to what we've seen in the last year, it won't be the surging energy costs. It will be things around food, potentially rent, and the sort of broader issue of inflation in general relative to people's pay increases. That's one side of it. The other thing I think that we're going to see increasingly emerge as an electoral issue rather than a sort of campaigning issue or thing people are aware of is the wider climate crisis the fact that this is imposing costs on us, that this is uh, an increasingly unstable sort of weather situation we find ourselves in. It's unavoidable for people. It is more floods. It is more extreme heat in the summer. It's more uh, chaos and disruption to supply chains the world over that starts to turn into higher prices for us. So I think that's actually going to become uh, something of an electoral issue by the next year as well.
1: Thank you,
2: James. Uh, Anoush? I think the NHS will be a big electoral issue. I know that one of Sunak's priorities is to try to bring waiting lists down. But, you know, that's something that he can say he's done without it feeling that way um, for the millions of people who are waiting for procedures. And obviously, if you've had your treatment delayed, then your uh, issue, your condition gets worse. And I think you know, it's likely that people will be in a worse situation in terms of their health and in terms of knowing, you know, a lot more people who have gone through this um, by the next election. So I think that's going to be a big one. And second, I think childcare will be a bigger electoral issue than we've seen it be before, mainly because of inflation, because of the cost of living. So, you know, the cost of childcare is really eating into people's wages. (laughs) But it's also extremely expensive as well, one of the most expensive in the world. And it affects all generations. So, you know, parents and also grandparents who are often the people who are sort of brought in to try and uh, help out where parents can't afford childcare for their kids. So I think, yeah, watch out for childcare and, and health.
1: I could certainly see that. And I guess the only other one I would throw in is probably the cultural stuff that we've talked about, you know, especially we didn't have time to go into it but you know some of the anti-immigrant rhetoric that we're seeing popping up and being emboldened in lots of spaces and then also as we've discussed of course the the trans debate um as always there is so much more that i would like to discuss with you both but that is sadly all we've got time for on this episode of the new economics podcast but i'm very happy about how much we managed to squeeze in that felt like a very juicy political burger so thank you um, both so much for bringing uh, all your wisdom anusha kellyan first of all thanks for being with us if people want to find out more about your work where can they go how can they find you
2: <laughs> they can listen to the new statesman podcast which they can find in their podcast app or on spotify or they can go to newstatesman.com or pick up a copy of the new Statesman, which comes out weekly
1: Thank you. I have to say, Anoush, I often hear your voice echoing around my house because it's my partner's (laughs) favourite podcast. And when he found out I was interviewing, he was like, tell her I said hi. No, don't, she doesn't know me, Uh, which is very sweet. Um, (laughs) Sorry you get me in surround sound today. (laughs) Yeah, it's everywhere. Um, And James Meadway, same question. How can people uh, find out more about your fantastic work and hear more James Meadway?
0: Uh, okay if you, if you really want to do that I also have a <laughs> podcast because yeah, this is just what this is what people do so it's called Macrodose uh, out every week 15 minutes on the economy uh, occasional actually fairly regular uh, longer interviews with interesting economics related people as well and that's Macrodose which you can get from wherever you get your podcasts from and if you want to follow him in Twitter it's uh, at meadwaj M-E-A-D-W-A-J
1: Ah, lovely. I'm sure that will soon be echoing around my home as well, James, now that I know about it. Uh, Fantastic. Thanks so much, both. That is it for today's new economics podcast. I think you'll agree that the first episode back has been a stonker and we'll be back soon with more. If you've enjoyed the episode, please tell someone about it. We are at Neff on Twitter, where you can drop us a line, comments, questions, all those nice things. The New Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. I'm still Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.